Good morning. We're going to uh, continue in our series in Romans. We're looking at Romans chapter 5. If you have your Bible, you can turn uh, there, or you can uh, watch on the screen. We're going to read it from the screen as well. So uh, Romans chapter 5 is our second sermon, looking at verses 12 to 21. And uh, last week, we asked the question, look, look, look out in the world, see all the brokenness, all the injustice, all the pain. Look in my life, all the wreckage, all the sin. Where did that come from? question we asked last week. This week is, what is God going to do about it? What will God do about it? So uh, hear God's word in Romans 5 and, and Paul's answer to that question. We're going to focus on 15 to 17 in the sermon, but I'm going to read the whole passage for context. So Romans 5, 12 to 21. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, that's Adam, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given. But sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. It's, of course, Jesus. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of the one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if because of one man's trespass death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. So as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. The law came to increase the trespass. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. This is the reading of God's holy and inerrant word. Let's pray. Father, we pray this morning that um, the reading and the preaching of your word would be attended not with words of human wisdom, I don't have much of that to offer, but it would be attended with the work and the power of your Spirit. I pray that you would open our eyes to behold wonderful things, glorious things, things of your love and your grace and your mercy from this portion of your word. In Jesus' name, amen. What will God do with the broken places in your life? What's God going to do with the broken places in the world? What's God going to do about all the, 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 the sin and the injustice and the um, brokenness that has come and infected his creation? Well, we saw, you know, last week we saw that every human being is born, as Paul says, in Adam, born in solidarity with him, born in his family, and therefore we inherit things from him as our father, like we inherit his brokenness, his sin, his condemnation. All those things are inherited from him. And we saw it there in verse 12. Paul says, sin came into the world through one man, Adam, and death through sin, and death spread to all 
men. So it's clear right there in verse 12. But the question now is, what is God going to do about it? And just like we saw last week, kind of the good news there is if one man, Adam, the work of one man can break all of creation, then the work of one man, Jesus, can restore and fix all of creation. And how can he do that? So Paul shows us really just three things here. First, uh, and the whole time he's reflecting on the character of God. This is what God does. This is who God is. What will he do to fix this problem? He says he's, God comes, God lavishes, and God restores. Three things. He comes, he lavishes, he restores. Now, you remember that the background, if you listen, the background of this, of this, uh, of this story is the Adam and Eve story, right? Uh, so, so a lot of you kind of at least have a familiar understanding of that. Genesis 3, right? What happened? They ate from the tree that they weren't supposed to eat from. And when they ate from the tree, what was the first thing that happened to them? What's the first thing that happened to Adam and Eve when they ate from the tree? They felt shame, right? There was this brokenness. And, and then there's these terrible, desperately sad words in Genesis 3, uh, verse 8. And it says, they heard God, they heard God, and they hid. They heard him coming and they hid. You see, this, this fundamental brokenness had happened. Now, they had lost God. They had this alienation, sin and, 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 and injustice and brokenness that entered the world. And now, when God comes to them, what do they do? They run away. Instead of running to him, they're running away. They're hiding from him. There's this fundamental relationship that was broken with the creator that broke everything else about us and about the creation. So what will God do about it? How is he going to treat these rebellious subjects? And then I think after the most desperate, sad words, you get some of the most precious words in the Bible in verse 9, which says, but the Lord God called to the man. The Lord God called to the man. He came and he called out. He came down and he uh, called out. This is what God does. He comes into this place of brokenness. He doesn't have to, but he does. He looks into the heart of darkness. He looks into the, the heart of his people who just left him. And what does, he do? what does he do? He comes down and he calls out to the man. He calls out. It's an act of unbelievable mercy and unbelievable grace. And, and this is kind of what God is saying all the way across Scripture, that God... I have to come down because you can't come up. I have to come in because you can't get out. I have to pursue you because you're always running away. It's the trajectory of the whole Bible, right? Think, I mean, Adam and Eve story. God comes down. He calls out. Think about the Tower of Babel, the Tower of Babel. Remember what they're doing there? They're building a tower. I can build a tower to heaven, right? And then Genesis 11 says God came down to see it. Of course, what's the incarnation all about? God came down to us. We could never get up to him. We never climb that ladder. We'd never be moral enough and good enough. God came down. He comes into these places of brokenness, these lives of brokenness, these wrecks uh, that, that exist. He comes down. And then the final passage in Scripture, Revelation 21 and 22, what does John say about the end of time? Behold, I had a vision, and I saw heaven coming down. God comes in to a broken world because he cares about a broken world. It's an amazing act of mercy and of, of grace. And, and if you notice, Paul picking up on that narrative in Romans 5, that, that's what he does, right? In Romans 5, 1 to 11, whole time, what's he talked about in 1 to 11? Christians. Christian hope, Christian reconciliation, Christian perseverance. Now, verse 12 comes, 
Sin came into the world. He starts to talk about Adam, the world, everything, all of his creation, and says God came down into that place. There's this transition to God looking out from beyond his wall, so to speak, and out into the world. And what he's saying is that, listen, I looked and I saw, and all that I saw, the, 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 the injustice, the death, the brokenness, the sin, the rebellion against me, that did not make me, re- repel, it didn't make, make me re- uh, recoil against you. In fact, it made my heart erupt with mercy. And I came down, and I called out, and I came in. That's what God is saying, even as we come into the passage in Romans 5, that everything he saw that was broken did not stop him. In fact, it propelled him. And this is vastly different than any other religion, any other worldview, any other faith that you might have. Every other, what, what does religion say? Come, come up here. There's a God up there saying, come up here and, and be good. Be, a, be good and I will, I will like you. Be bad and I will get you. And in fact, Christianity says the exact opposite. You weren't good. You couldn't be good. You were broken. You broke everything. And yet I came down. I came in because you could not come up. And so Paul is really pointing us here to God's heart. The fact that God has a heart for the world. That he looks down on the world. He looks down on communities, on cities, on families, on you. And rather than be recoiled... He desires to come in. He desires to come down and to enter the place of brokenness. When God sees a mess, he's moved to action, not to repulsion. And so, you know, I think we see this all. If you're a parent, you see this all the time, right? Kids make a mess. Um, They're constantly making a mess, and you have to kind of decide what to do about it. And, uh, you know, this is probably too gross for you. But, you know, like sometimes you have a little kid, and you're, you're you're giving your child a bath, right? And, and, the, and when they're little, the child decides to turn the bathtub into his toilet, right? So this is, a, I know you're all horrified, but if you're a parent, this has all happened to you. And uh, when this happens, what do you do? Your, your kid is sitting in the tub. What do you do? Well, if you can't call your wife, then, then you have uh, only one choice, which is to go in. You have to come down. You have to get in there with him and clean it up. Why? Because it's not messy? It's not dirty? No, because it is. Because that's my son in there. I've got to get him out. That's the heart of God as he looks out on the world. I've got to get in there. Those are my children. And so he's turning. For those of us in the room that have been Christians for years and years, he's saying, turn and look out into the world. Listen, if this is God's heart, for the world to look out, to come down, to get into brokenness and dirty and messy situations. That should be our heart for the world, for for our neighborhoods, for our community, for the people living around us. Do you have God's heart for God's world? Do you have, how well do you know your neighbors? How, How much are you engaged with serving the poor? How much are you engaged with looking out from here, out into the world, out into my neighborhood, out into my community? That's God's heart for the world. He comes down. He gets his hands dirty. He's willing to get in the tub. He gets his hands dirty in the world. As Christians, he's saying, he's calling. If you're a Christian, he's saying, I'm calling you to also get your hands dirty. Because I have come and gone first. I've led the way and therefore you can come into broken places and in broken lives and bring healing and redemption and mercy. Because I've come down, you too can go in 
to the world. And so how well do you know your neighbors, your coworkers, your teammates, your classmates? Are you looking out to them to serve them, to bless them, to know them? That's the question that God is really uh, asking as he comes in this passage and looks out on a broken humanity. And the truth is, though, that we, we really, we can't look out until we know that God's come down, right? I mean, how can I look out and serve my, my teammates on my basketball team until I realize, if I'm looking to them for validation, I'm looking to them for approval, I'm looking to them for, for uh, you know, my life to mean something. But if I know God has come down and he has validated me, he has approved me, he has justified me, then I can look out to the world, then I can serve the poor, then I can serve my neighbors. So God comes down and he calls us uh, to go out. And the problem is, I think, Christians, we get very comfortable just being in here, right? Because these are our four walls and, you know, I tend to have a lot of friends here and know people and, and it's kind of easy and comfortable. But God is saying, I called you in to send you out. And it's going to be ugly out there. There's going to be broken people and broken lives and broken places and there's going to be injustice and terrible things. Go get your hands dirty because you're followed by God who is on mission to get his hands dirty in a broken world. That's what he's saying. Okay, so I've spent way too much time on the first point, but we'll move on to the second point and see what does God actually do when he does come down? When, when he does come in, what does he do? Because the question I have is, like, it seems like he would, he would kind of come and just kind of have his arms folded. He would scold us. He would slap us around a little bit. You know, he might just kind of turn his back on us, roll his eyes. What does he do? Paul says no. He comes to lavish. He comes to give and to give freely. And uh, I was saying that 15 to 17, if you try to read it in the Greek, it's all run together because Paul is so excited. It's like he's standing on tiptoes. You know, have you ever had a, a kid run up to you and they want to tell you something so bad, but they're just running, the language is just running out and you can't even understand. Just slow down, let me explain yourself here. That's the way Paul is actually talking. It's like this controlled ecstasy as he kind of uh, rolls this out. So l- listen to 15 and 16, this uncomparable lavishing of God's grace. So he says, the free gift of God is not like the trespass. If many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of the one man's sin. Judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many brought justification. So Paul, again, is comparing Adam and Jesus, and he says, yes, they're alike. Remember, I said that last week. They're alike in the sense that they, they both you know, represent, large, you know, represent and, and uh, affect large portions of humanity, but every other aspect about them is completely different. Everything that Adam did, Christ, is uh, the opposite. They're nothing alike. And you see this in verse 16, which I just read, and he says... Uh, Listen, Adam's trespass led to a judgment, right? What is a judgment? You go to court. Anytime you go to court, a judge finds for you or against you, right? He renders a verdict. He renders a judgment. And, and, he, and he says, in this case, Adam uh, had a trespass. He had a violation. He went to the court. The court rendered a, vi- uh, rendered, a, rendered a verdict called guilty. And in the text there, it says condemnation. The judgment following one was condemnation, Right? And that's why he can say that death reigns. Condemnation is the verdict on the human race, even prior to birth. Uh, therefore, you know, a lot of people think that kind of heaven is like the default position for God. Uh, but in fact, he says that you come in tied and connected to Adam in such a way that condemnation uh, is the verdict. Then, though, the sentence is not over. 
Because one of the greatest words in Scripture comes in, and it's the little word, uh, but. He says, this is one side of the equation. This is the Adam side of the equation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. That's an amazing reverse. He says, God has come into the situation, and he has lavished his grace upon those who are broken in Adam, those whose lives were destroyed. You see the compare and the contrast, Jesus and Adam, Adam and Jesus. Uh, he says, they're alike in, one, in only one way, but everything else, they're, they're, they're different. And that Adam's ruin is no match for Jesus' redemption. Everything that Adam did, everything that Adam broke is being unbroken, is being undone and more by Jesus. So Adam brings condemnation, Jesus brings justification. Adam brings despair, Jesus brings joy. Adam brings death, Jesus brings life. That's, that's, that's quite literally what he's saying and that the power of Jesus to save is infinitely greater than the power of Adam to destroy. Right? It's easier. It's, it's always it's easier to ruin something than it is to build something, right? I mean, I, every one of us in this room probably has the skill to demolish. Uh, I can give you a sledgehammer and you can go to work on that wall and all of us probably do pretty well tearing something up, ruining something, which is what Adam did. But very few of us have the skill to come in and take the wreckage after this building would be destroyed and then rebuild it into something magnificent. But Paul is saying it's like Adam destroyed like a backyard tool shed and Jesus came in and took the wreckage heap and made it into a giant palace. That's, the, that's how vastly different the two uh, actually are. And you see the words there. I mean, you see it in the language. He says uh, the word much more is, is there. The word abounded. That word literally means to make rich, to make wealthy, right? Because we kind of think, well, yeah, Adam you know, made you poor, right? Adam kind of put us in debt. So uh, he's like, you know, negative 100. I'm like $100 short in the, in the bank account. And Jesus comes and he's plus 100. And he makes us, you know, all balance out of zero, right? So now I'm, now I'm you know, even Stephen. Paul's saying that's absolutely not the case. He's saying that God's grace is abounding. God's grace is making you... He is a zillionaire in glory, a zillionaire in grace. And he's pouring that out. He's giving it, uh, he's giving it to us. And so grace is, is, is actually a lot more than just forgiveness. Forgiveness would just kind of put us right back where Adam was, right? Adam was kind of on probation. just put us right back there. But grace takes us not to where Adam was, but to where Jesus is. It gives us Jesus. And the, the further we go into that, the deeper it gets, right? I mean, it's like um, not long ago we were at a friend's house, and, and they were just giving us the most lavish meal. I mean, it was incredible. It's like every, every new course, it got better and better. And every time there was another course came out, and then that one was better than the last one. And the, the meal was so good. You know, you only need like a little bit of food to survive. I mean, I didn't need that much food, right? But, he, but, but they were saying, we're lavishing on the, you, this on you because we're showing you how much love that we have for you. Or it's like, you know, if you, if you uh, drive, most of us probably in this room have driven to the, to the Rockies from here. So, you know, like you're driving across um, the, the death plain of Kansas, and it's like, you know, 36 weeks in the car, that, that, that seven hours feels like, or however long it is. And so you're just driving, it's endless, it's bleak, it's just, you know, nothing out there. I've already gotten comments from some Kansas people after the first sermon, so you don't have to come and defend your state. I'm sure there's some beautiful places somewhere, but I-70 is not one of them. So when you're driving across, it's this bleak. But then, you know, all of a sudden, you see the tips of the Rockies, right? You start to see, they come into view. And you're like, wow, that's beautiful, you know? And then, then an hour later, you're like, man, it's, oh, it's getting closer. It's amazing. And then all of a sudden, you're like in the mountains. And it's like, the more you get into the mountains, the more majestic and more beautiful that they get. And then you're hiking and skiing and doing whatever, you know? And it's, it's like, wow. 
this is amazing. The further I get in, the more amazing it is. And that's what God is saying his grace is like. I've poured it out. It's abounded to you. And the more you get into it, the more beautiful it becomes, the more deep, the more rich, the more rich I will make you is basically uh, what he's saying. And so I, I think this means a lot of things. The first thing it means is that, number one, is that the gra- th- th- there is infinitely more grace in Jesus than there is sin in you. There is infinitely more grace in Jesus than there is sin in you. And so many of us, we want to, to focus on ourselves. We're going to either work, work our way, earn our way into the kingdom, or we can guilt our way into the kingdom. Right? We, just, we, we think, if I just feel guilty enough, you know, if I just feel bad enough, then God's going to you know, let me in. If, if I, if, or if I just do good enough, if I just get my life clean enough, if I just get myself moral enough, then God's going to let me in. And it's just the wrong way to approach it. It's actually kind of a slap in the face to God's grace. He, what does he say? It's a free gift. And you're saying, I don't want the free gift. I will earn it, right? I don't want your free gift, God. I will get there, right? It's like, imagine that, that uh, you were there when Michelangelo was painting like the, the, the Sistine Chapel ceiling, and he was like, you know, he finished the last stroke, and then he kind of steps back and is like, that's it, masterpiece. And you're like, mm, let me get in there with my paintbrush, uh, Michelangelo, and you like start, you know, doodling on the doodling. I mean, that's, like, that's what it's like when we decide, you know, God, yeah, pretty good. I like that. But let me get in and show you what I can do here. Uh, let me show you how moral I can be. Let, that, that's kind of what, what, uh, what happens. But five times here he says, free gift, free gift, free gifts. Five times in the same passage. A gift is not something that you earn or not something that you can earn. And the worst thing you could ever do is ask God to give you what you deserve. The worst thing you could ever do is ask God to give you what you deserve. That, don't, that won't work out well. Uh, number two is that we're saying that God is a God that lavishes gifts, that lavishes grace. And w- what he's saying is that's completely counterculture to every other God, every other system. In fact, every other God is not a gift-giving God, but a gift-taking God, a gift-receiving God, a gift-demanding God. And you might say, well, you know what? I don't buy into the whole worship. I don't really worship God. I don't, I don't really know what I think about Jesus yet. I'm kind of investigating. Or I don't, so I don't really buy into the whole worship scene, so this really doesn't have anything to do with me. But I would say, wait just a minute, because it actually, I think, it, it, it does, because if you look at it, worship, we, we kind of define it so narrowly and religiously, right? Like, this is worship is what we do right now, and some songs we sing in a few minutes, that's just worship. But what, the word worship just means worth. This means worth or value, right? So worship just means, what do I value? What do I prize? What, do, what, what is the ultimate value of my life? What do I go to the mat for? What do I be willing to, to really sacrifice for? That's what worship is. And all of us have that. All of us have some value, some ultimate value, something in our life that we value so much that we go to the mat for it. And, it, and, and whether it's gods of some other system or whether it's money or sex or power or family or relationships, those gods will be gift demanding gods. Our God is a gift-giving God. In fact, so much that he would lavish his own son. So lavish, so great. He gives his own son. That's what he's saying. What is it that is worth most to you? Uh, and then third, I think this really makes God's grace become real. It, it, it stops the cheapening of God's grace. Why do I say that? Why? Because you, you've heard it so many times in this passage I've read. It. I mean, Paul talks constantly sin, trespass, condemnation. Why is he talking about all these negative things? Just talk about the love of God, right? 
Well, the love of God without the justice of God just becomes sappy, sentimentalism. It becomes nothing, right? So this is why Paul is telling us, he's saying, he's trying to show the contrast between Adam and Christ. You say, this is how far God went. He's, so he's painting these brilliant you know, colors on a, on a bleak, dark backdrop, on a bleak, dark canvas, and saying, compare who you would be in Adam versus who you can be uh, in, in Christ. And so against the backdrop of sin and death and judgment is Jesus, and life, and joy, and justification, and all, all those benefits. So as Tim Keller says, the more you see your own flaws and sins, the more precious, electrifying, and amazing God's grace will appear to you. And what he's really saying is this. To whom is a banquet attractive? Uh, a banquet is attractive, a feast is attractive to someone who's hungry, right? I mean, who, uh, wh- who's desperate for medicine and medical care? The healthy? No, the sick, right? The sick. Who, who, who's, desperate, who's desperate for money? The rich? No, the poor. See, he's painting this contrast. And he's saying, who's desperate for mercy? The moral? No. The self-righteous? No. Sinners. How do you get this lavish grace that God gives? You have to be desperate for it. You have to be hungry for it. You have to be thirsty for it. You have to want it. You have to know that you need it. Flannery O'Connor said, all you need is need. All you need is need. That's how you get it. It's, not, it's a free gift. It's given because you need it, not because you can earn it. That's why, you think about it, when, when the, mercy never looked good to the moral. Mercy's never attractive to the moral. Why? Because I don't need it. That's why, that's why most of the time I'm not a very lavish person. I'm not lavish like God. I'm not generous like God is. Why? Because I don't need other people's generosity, so I don't need to give anybody any generosity. That's how cold your heart can become when you're thinking in those kinds of terms. And so, like, if, you, if you're here and you've been a Christian maybe for a long time, maybe 10, 20, 30 years, and you're thinking, why? I don't have a lot of hunger in my life. I don't have a lot of thirst. I don't have a lot of drive. I don't have a lot of desperation for the mercy of God. It may be because you've stopped looking to Christ and started looking in here to say, what can I, I I'm, I'm working, I'm earning, I'm being a good person. That's what the gospel is. And Paul is saying, that's not what the gospel is. He's saying, blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. They will be the ones that are filled. So am I hungry? Uh, and then lastly, so God comes, he lavishes and then he restores. And we don't really have time to fully unpack this verse, but I do want to look and just see one thing in verse 17. Uh, Paul says, because of one man's trespass, death reigned through the one man. Much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. You see what he's saying there? If you look at the word reign, what is that, the word reign or rule, what does that conjure up? It's, it's kingship imagery, right? Who rules, who reigns? It's a king. A king sits on the throne and rules and reigns. And what Paul is saying is that there was one king named King Sin, named King Death, named King Brokenness. And he has held sway over the world and his time is up. And now a new king has come and he's called King Jesus. And he has a different reign, a different rule, one that's based on grace, one that's based on mercy, one that's based on coming down and lavishing his own son on his people. 
the operating principle of sin and death has lost its power, and now Jesus has come for those who believe and trust in him. And what he's saying is that everything that has been lost, you say, my life is a wreck, it cannot be fixed, my life is, is so broken, I'm so bad, I'm, I'm whatever. He's saying everything that has been lost in Adam can be restored in Christ. Everything lost, everything you have lost, everything you have done can be undone, can be restored. Not just covered up, not just papered over, restored. The reign of the grace of God. How does that happen? I think it's easy when you think about the contrast, Adam and Christ, right? Adam in one garden, falling to temptation, and Jesus in another garden. Remember, God came to Adam in the Garden of Eden, right? The beautiful, lush paradise. And he said, obey me about the tree, Adam. Don't eat from the tree. Obey me about the tree and you will live. And Adam didn't. In another garden, completely different, Jesus stands in the Garden of Gethsemane, praying in agony, sweating, drops of blood. And he says to Jesus, Son, obey me about the tree. Obey me about the cross. Right? He said to Adam, obey me about the tree and you'll live. And Adam didn't. And he comes to Jesus and says, obey me about the tree and you will die. I will crush you. But in your crushing, the world will be healed. In your brokenness, the world will be lifted up. Obey me about the tree and you will live. And he did. He looked into a world of sin and brokenness and despair and he, and he came, and he lavished, and he restores, and he is restoring. Obey me about the tree, and you will die, and Jesus did. And by his death, Paul says, that one act of righteousness, all the world is being made new. What are you going to do with that Savior? Let's pray.